again. I'm Mary Burns, and this is The Reason for Time, Episode 5, a podcast about memory, truth, and invention, and how they came together in a novel. By the way, the podcast is coming to you from the same desk where I wrote the novel. As I listened to Ethel Witte leafing through the book pages I gave her to spontaneously read, I think of Maeve herself leafing through her memories of that week in Chicago. My original idea for the book was inspired by John Dos Passos and his trailblazing USA trilogy. I first read that novel, really three novels, in my early 20s and have since read it at least twice. The early part of the 20th century used to be my favorite period of American literature. Remember me mentioning the socially conscious writers like Theodore Dreiser and Upton Sinclair? Well, their works have not held up for me. I did love the way they took on social issues, but oh my God, they used a lot of words, and reading them can be heavy going by today's standards. Upton Sinclair barely disguised as fiction his expose of the packing houses in the Chicago stockyards. It was a novel with a lot of message. Not so much in the case of John Dos Passos. He was more of a risk taker. To handle his vast vision of the United States in the first half of the 20th century, Dos Passos used four different styles of narration. The straight third-person narrative that we are used to seeing in novels, plus a running stream-of-consciousness autobiography called The Camera Eye, There are also many biographies of important figures of the era, such as Woodrow Wilson and the organized labor hero, Eugene Debs, even newsreel excerpts. Younger listeners may not know that newsreels used to be shown in movie houses before the main feature. This was before television. To deal with everything that happened in that 10-day period in Chicago in 1919 and all that it implied, I had tried various methods, but there was always the danger of getting too expository, like Upton Sinclair had. I mean, explaining the race riot and the forces that led up to it, for example, or describing the corrupt corrupt politics of the town. You know, all those things that are interesting enough to read about, but take away from the artfulness of a novel. So I thought I would pay homage to one of my literary heroes and at the same time fasten upon a solution to handling the raw material. I copied newspaper headlines from the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Daily News and used them directly. The headlines helped pace the story while informing readers of events. It was a natural thing to do, too, because believe it or not, There were nine general circulation newspapers in those days in Chicago, not even a hundred years ago. It was the year before radio came on air and way before television. Newsboys yelled headlines on the street, and in the late editions you could get your ball game scores. Hey, did you know that the summer of 1919 was also the year that the White Sox threw the World Series? That happened after the week I concentrated on, but John Sayles made a movie about it, Eight Men Out, which gives you a good sense of the time and the scandal. Anyway, people like their papers, and my Maeve is no exception. 
But that may have been influenced by a grandma memory too, because I remember my grandma with a newspaper on her lap, a magnifying glass in her hand, sitting in the armchair that was part of the set my mother bought for her once she had finished school and was working full time. Probably the only matching furniture Grandma ever had. Maeve is a reader, and the papers help her feel part of the city. Remember this bit Ethel read in episode one? She'd seen the blimp crash herself. Yet didn't it seem more real when you saw it printed? Right there in black and white, and not just me reading it, no. All the big shots mattered to the city to read the same. Really everyone. Isn't it like that for most of us? Movies, papers, reviews, they all seem to confer a sense of legitimacy on experience, as Walker Percy noted in The Moviegoer. Percy Spinks Bowling encounters the movie actor William Holding on the street and gains confidence by being in the actor's presence. He has one title to his own existence, as plenary an existence now as Holden's, wrote Percy. So the newspaper angle worked, but in the draft I submitted to publishers, I also had film script excerpts that revealed what happened to Maeve after that week in Chicago. In my mind, those passages would work counter to the forward progress of the week by establishing Maeve as an old woman looking back then dipping into various times in her life between 1919 and her death. So I was always intrigued by time, but I was uncertain about this tactic. My first reader, the poet David Zeroth, sensed the tentativeness of the film passages. The publisher, Emily Victorson, felt the same way and suggested that I axe them. Another editor might have worked with me to better incorporate them. Another editor might have guided me to a different outcome. But I had decided to go with Emily at Allium Press. Throughout the process from acceptance to publication, she asked some good questions and was always willing to end a discussion with, well, it's your book. And she designed a beautiful cover that was not my first choice of those she presented. Lucky she held her ground because the cover has proven to be a winner and the face of the woman on it has become the image I keep in my mind for Maeve. I wrote text to replace the missing film script parts so the novel has come to look and be more conventional in style. The newspaper headlines stayed, but the names, because I named most of the female characters besides Maeve after characters from Dos Passos, Many of the names changed, too. My editor confessed that she had a thing about names. She didn't like it that there were both a Packy and a Petey, for example. Well, it kept Packy, a derivative of Patrick, because he was Maeve's first intended. But Petey was easy to change to Walter because he was very minor, the late fiancé of one of the office girls, Florence, who had been Ethel the second office girl whose name began with an E, my editor complained. It was easy to change Ethel to Florence, but Eveline, who plays a larger part in the story, stayed Eveline, and so the bow I wished to make to John Dos Passos, while now a mere dip of the head, remains. 
Eveline comes from John Dos Passos's Eveline Hutchins, who is quite a gal. In replacing the film script excerpts, I found that Evelyn developed more as a character. Questions my editor asked about secondary characters helped me grow Evelyn into the person she came to be and the reason for time. Also quite a gal. As for Maeve, well, she started her fictional life as Mare. That's M-A-I-R-E. But my publisher thought that readers would read it as Mare and not the Mayra Gaelic speakers would say. I felt strongly about keeping Mare. Most readers would say it as I do, and the name was a tribute to my female ancestors, most of whom were called Mary. Just as important, the name was working in an already created sentence rhythm by the time my publisher got to it. Myra wouldn't work. The publisher didn't insist, but as publication date drew nearer, I thought of the name Maeve. It was a single syllable, like the mare I heard in my mind, and I decided to use it because it also helped me gain some distance from the character, which is good when you're saying goodbye, sending your fictional character into the world. Because that day burned just as hot as the day before, we all gathered again outside in the shade and the smoke at lunchtime and listened to Ruth read out of the true-life love story you could find in the crib. If you wrote in with your story and they took it, they'd pay you a $5 bill. Ruth's eyes, the bulgy of someone with a bad thyroid, blinked again and again because of the sun sneaking through the weave of her hat or because of the emotion of it. She read aloud in the thrall of a couple, Molly and Mac, met aboard a ship traveling the world on the way to Egypt. They got off the boat in Spain and went touring around and visited an old bell tower they saw. There the bell ringer persuaded them to pull the bell rope. Wasn't it later they learned that any couple ringing the bell together at the twilight hour were destined to be married some day? Sure enough, as the trip went on they fell in love and announced their engagement and were married in London. Isn't it beautiful, Ruth moaned. Gladys pinched my arm because she thought Ruth not simple exactly, maybe innocent is the word. Poor Ruth longed so for a love story of her own, someone to talk to, to write to, other than the brother over there still mending in some hospital in France. She lived not far from our work in a residence for women and saved money each week to buy things for her hope chest, she said. We took her at her word, but living where she did and being who she was with her bulgy eyes and her childlike voice, what hope could there be? An unkind notion, sure, and who was I thinking I was after just one evening with a handsome man? You had to watch it, or they'd trick you, the good people. You had to watch not just what you said, but your thoughts, too. I nodded to show Ruth that, yes, it was a beautiful story, Molly and Jack, sure, but same as the talk of the town, starring the very Dorothy Phillips himself, said I resembled. The pictures, the stories come from a world seemed altogether different than the one where I loved. Wouldn't I like to visit it, though? Falling in love on a ship. Had to be sailing smoother seas than the one we crossed with the Sisters of Perpetual Grace, Margaret and me. For you'd not have had the strength to raise your head, and when you did, you'd be looking at someone sick as you. We heard the cries from something going on in the dark corners of the steerage where we snuggled together, trying to comfort each other with images of the lives we'd have as good nuns if we ever reached the shore we dreamed of. But it sounded more like pain than love. Still, five dollars, weren't we all thinking the same thought? 
easy money, and didn't we have true love stories of our own? I'm going to write about my Walter. That was true love, Florence said. But Walter's gone. Not such a happy ending, if you ask me, Eveline reminded her. And then, just like one of the fast types in the picture, she said, I guess I've got some love stories I could tell. Question is... And she winked here, Evelyn did, because she was that kind of girl, for all you couldn't help getting a laugh from what she said. Question is, would anyone print them? Florence thought Evelyn aimed to mock her, but I knew it was just Evelyn. A little older, thought she never, though she never said how much, and maybe cockier, because she'd made her own way in the city from the day she moved here, young from another state, Indiana or Ohio or some other state, begins with a vowel. While she left home so young had me puzzling. She never said much about her man, though there were brothers and a da. She'd refer to them now and then, never kindly, but in that same cool, joking way she had. If I'd asked for more, she might have demanded my own story to make us even, but only Margaret would ever know the truth, most of it. The talk of the girls started me plotting. Of course, the bells in my story would be the ones we heard every day, clanging as the cars snaked around the rail bends. Not romantic as a castle in Spain, and sure they'd frown on a girl who tried to nick a bathing costume to go off with a fella alone on her first date, so I'd have to change to the details some. They called them true-life love stories, but who knows what Molly and Jack got up to in that castle, or on the decks of that great ship as it sailed, whatever seas never made them lose their breakfast. Yet I liked the part about the legend, because didn't it smack of the fairy stories, the mischief of the good people made to steer the affairs of those mostly couldn't see, but only feel their meddling ways. The piece of cake you saved for yourself under your pillow, suddenly gone to remind you of your selfishness, but a wandering pig miraculously found before she fell into the hands of some family hungrier than your own. Oh yes, I'd felt them many times, guiding me same as the mother of God even then that week in Chicago. Hadn't the airship tragedy been the occasion sparked his interest in me? Not that the good people would have caused the blimp to crash. No, I wouldn't think so, not for that reason alone. But was it not a skein, sure? Everything knotted up in ways you could not divine until later, maybe not even then. And here, the opportunity to record what had already begun to develop in my mind as a story every bit as magical as the one Ruth continued to swoon about. Imagine, she said again, like it was all planned. I'll write about that soldier I met at Riverview. Bought me chop suey, then one of them little paper umbrellas. He even held it over me when it rained. What do you think? Not your bell tower, Evelyn laughed, and then we had to go in. Sears Roebuck and them promised their catalog customers shipment, even delivery, the same day as Ord came in. But Sears Roebuck had hundreds of girls on the floors, whereas at our magic outfit, only a few of us processed orders came in for illusions, and the paper novelties offered by the Rainbow Paper Company. Of course, the amusement line did not demand the same hurry you'd imagine for a new suit of clothes for a wedding, to name one thing. Still, we had standards, and how could we know that the disappearing wand or the improved bouquet and card trick might not be the effect would turn a parlor magician into a vaudeville star, changing his life? Meaning, most days... We worked efficient as those after sending out the more ordinary things people needed. Same as at the mission school, it came to the old question of the envelopes. I'd become the expert at opening them addressed to the Chicago Magic Company and dividing the contents. The money orders and the cash to one side, 
the catalog number and a description of the object on the other. Rolling in an order sheet and pressing down hard on the keys, a little thud instead of a tap, as the metal key made its mark through three thicknesses, a copy to send to the customer, a copy for the stock boy, and a copy for Mr. R., who made sure the money came in equaled the cost of what we sent out. No credit in the operation, and precious little cash either, because not many ignored the advice on the second page of the catalogue. But today, as if I'd done good and fate was steering things my way, I found a five-dollar bill folded into an order for the talking scalp. When I saw the number on the bill, I left it inside its paper sleeve and shuffled it to the bottom of the pile, deliberately slowed my breath, lowered my shoulders and pressed my arms against my ribs. As much as the price for a love story, the envelope never gave me the opportunity to stall, for the customer had enclosed the catalogue entry itself, and I read the trick description as if it was new to me and marvellous, the drawing it all, with the addled white birds lifting right up from that frying pan, the wizard's omelette. The money order got clipped to the copy for Mr. R, the copy for Billy and to the tray meant for him. The envelope with the shape of the bill inside smouldered at the bottom of my pile. If I took it right out, Evelyn would see. Our desks were that close, and if I went ahead and slipped the bill into my pocketbook, I didn't know if I'd see judgment or pleasure on her narrow face. But my fingers had learned to be smart them days I spent thinning out the donations at the mission so's Margaret and me could make our way north to Chicago. When Billy came to pick up the orders, distracting everyone with his patter, for he never missed an opportunity, I slipped that lucky envelope into my sleeve and waited until he'd pushed through the door to the stockroom before I went to the lab in the hall, taking my pocketbook sure and rolling my eyes at Florence as I passed, guarding the sleeve in question by placing my arm at my waist and the other hand over that and wincing a little with the pain I wanted her to think came from my monthlies. Must it always be this way, I thought to myself in the hallway the depths opening black for that one minute before me answering myself in the same thought. It must, for the time being. But Desmond Malloy could be the man to lead me out of this life, and then wouldn't I make it all good? Him, after opening a window, I could step through to the future, where someone else managed the juggling of the daily needs. Avoiding the other girls at leaving time, I hurried into the first elevator, stopped, then sauntered through the marble foyer onto the street with nobody ever suspecting what I carried with me. Not so much I couldn't save and put it back, same as I put a penny into the box for the missions whenever I went to church. Only a five, not a week's pay, maybe even not enough, paused me a minute. Yes, it must be enough, it had to be, for just as if on a regular errand I joined the State Street throngs and headed towards the fair, straight to the section where the bathing costumes hung. I could have tried the heaps of clothes in the stalls on Maxwell Street, and maybe found what I wanted, but with the plan being to meet my man tomorrow, I had no time to take a chance on Maxwell Street. I knew the farewell, the dresses and the on-sale goods, the toiletry section where Gladys and me would stop and smell the creams on display, while girls our age, but dressed fancier in black with shirt sleeves and collars white as a new tooth, stood behind the counter looking proud as if they owned the creams themselves. Upstairs, then, where mannequin heads modelled the loveliest straw hats for summer, and beyond them the racks of bathing costumes, cotton jersey, wool, satin. 
Wouldn't I loved one of the satin models felt so slick under my hand, shone like a lathered bay horse, the one used to stand in Church Street and let me pet him. No horse for me, Connor Cora's eldest daughter. No satin bathing costume, neither, for all the bill my envelope gave up. Well, the mohair would more than do, and I picked a nice navy one with the white piping trimmed the square neckline, held it up to myself, and thought it was sure enough fit. The sales lady asked, Don't you want to try it on, and would you like some assistance, and have you seen the bathing slippers and stockings, the charming overskirts? Her saying it with a smirk meant... I have to say these words as part of the job, but I know who you are. I never was trying to hide it. How could I, being who I am, small? I have always been small, but I have made my way as I had to. I only opened my pocketbook and snatched out the five rightfully belonged to someone wanted an imitation skull to tell him what to do, as if there weren't enough empty-headed ones running the show, plus one dollar of my own and put the bills on the counter. She wrapped the bathing costume in paper and dropped it into a bag. I thanked her, and that was that, despite her smile told me what she thought of me, and it wasn't much. I'd got the thing, yes, I had, in the store after closing. A light-colored man in a blue uniform, a mulatto with the steel-wool hair, but thin lips and a nose straight and haughty as Potter Palmer's, stood at the door and inspected me like he could see inside my mind. I held out the bag, the sack with the name on it, the fare. This big man would discourage anyone trying to lift goods from the store, but me, I was a shopper like everyone else, dribbling out the doors, my glance told him, and why would he think otherwise? Him in the uniform, sure, but no policeman. You saw colored at the doors, but not shopping, not at the fair, though you did see them everywhere else, crowding streetcars, some lines. Plenty in Chicago wished these new kind of coloreds would march right back to whatever ship landed them and sail to Africa, or at least board a train bound for where they'd come from, Mississippi, Alabama, somewhere we'd pass through Margaret and me riding north and saw out the window the shacks, the stick-laid children. T'was the colored paper started at all, the Chicago Defender, with what they'd called a great northern drive, trying to get colored folks to leave the south, where they'd been slaves and where they might be strung up for the slightest thing, and get themselves to Chicago for factory jobs and grand times at the hottest nightclub. Well, they must have believed what they read in the papers because, like Desmond Malloy had said, there was a stream coming into the city and unsettling those had come earlier. We mix and the Polacks, like Harry and all the rest from every corner of the world. He was one who complained about them taking all the jobs at the yards and steering clear of the union. Made it bad for the rest, said Harry. But Harry never made room in his mind for much more than his job is kind in Margaret. Like I said... I got over the fear of folks with skin different than mine when we were in Florida, for it was my job to look after the babies, whatever their color. Them ivory, or tobacco brown, or caramel, some of them, really, all the tints natured mixed. Oh, but wouldn't I liked that kind of life, bringing something home every day. Then I looked at the streetcar strike another way, for if the carmen got the raise and Desmond Malloy got me, wouldn't the extra money just be more to support this habit I could get into of strolling the store aisles, thinking of what I might like and what I might need? And wouldn't Desmond be happy with new ties, same as I'd seen draped on a rack above the counter near the door? Oh, yes, I'll take that one, I'd say to the sales lady. Maybe that one as well to match his eyes. They're such a lovely green, you know. 
and her smile would be altogether different than the girl who packed my bathing costume and tissue paper crackling inside the bag I carried close against me as I wrestled through the going-home crowds on State Street. It was suffering hot on the Madison car. People standing sleepy, odors of all kinds insisting, car crawling along. Sometimes you'd think you could have walked faster. Lucky ones sitting near the windows, covered by grills the gritty breeze pushed through. Even though later than my usual hour, all the seats filled, as it seemed they always were, and more of us hanging from straps. Not much talk at the end of the day, and a sweltering one such as that, with everyone's feet stinging like they must be, like mine stung. Some reading the daily news, or the examiner, or one of the papers in their own languages, or the trip, gone old since the morning. Me, trying to get a glimpse of what had happened since I last looked. Car men offer wage compromise. West parched, suffers. Girl missing in mystery. While wondering if my crime would make a story one day. One of them small ones on the back pages. Headline in short skinny letters, but news all the same. Clerk dismissed for thievery. Thanks to Ethel Witte, Alley Impressive Chicago, Harris Dixon, Scott Joplin, and Hans Nelson for helping make this podcast. And thank you for listening. Visit The Reason for Time on Facebook, look for it on the virtual shelves of all the online stores, or better yet, ask for it at an independent bookstore, such as the Ennis Bookshop in Ennis, County Clare, Ireland. I'm Mary Burns. Next time, more about Ennis.